Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, David Haber, formerly of Bond Street, now Goldman Sachs, and Zach Prey, uh, co-founder of Plaid. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. So why don't we start with the origin story? So uh, David, you met Zach in 2012 and then invested in Plaid uh, when you were at Spark. Why don't you talk about the story of how you two met and more importantly, what you saw in Plaid that led you to invest? Yeah, so we met... It was 2012. I think Howard Hahn actually introduced us. It was Howard, yeah. Yeah, who was working at a firm called Thayer Street at the time. I was like an analyst at Spark kind of running around. We had just opened up the New York office and met Zach and Will. You know, and I think, A, they were awesome. So that was like <laughs> priority number one. But like I was super interested in this space. I'd been sort of fascinated by like payments exhaust, right? And at the time, there was a bunch of companies trying to capture sort of intent you know, with check-ins and Foursquare and, and then, you know, but, but the actual payments were the actual intent and sort of preferences that people had and had spent time earlier trying to get access to like guildly information. And, and I remember our first meeting being like, well, what if you like geotagged those transactions? You're like, you mean like this? <laughs> and that was sort of early, early days, but I saw there was like a real need for the product. Yeah. And Zach, why don't you give overview of what was the insight that led you to start Plaid and what was sort of the environment of fintech uh, at the time, or what did fintech look like that enabled a company like Plaid to emerge? Yeah, so Plaid was actually started somewhat by accident. William, uh, my co-founder, and I had this this thesis that that you could build better products for consumers and financial services. If you think about the the impact that money has on people's lives, it's the number one most stressful thing uh, in a consumer's life. It's the thing that limits you from doing something that you might want to do. It dictates, or the amount of money that you have dictates. Uh, the way that you can live your life in so many different ways. And a lot of consumers don't feel well served by the products uh, that that they have in front of them, or certainly five years ago, they didn't feel that well served. And, um, you know, following 2009, 2008-ish timeframe, you had, sorry, following 2008, uh, you had uh, Occupy Wall Street come out and all of these people saying that they distrusted their financial institutions uh, because the financial institutions had, had an incentive to make profit from, from their money instead of kind of putting that profit back in the consumer's pocket. And so while now the products that banks build are still quite good, um, there's still this inherent distrust of, of financial institutions by many consumers. And so our goal in the earliest sense was to build a set of products that enabled consumers to live a better or easier financial life. We started out doing this by creating a set of consumer products uh, to help people spend, to help people budget, to help people manage their own money. But it was actually difficult goings for us because the infrastructure to collect data from financial institutions to allow a consumer to view their own data, to, to get a digital copy of their bank statement, for example, it didn't exist. And we had to go in and, and build that infrastructure, do those bank integrations. And along the way, we found that kind of with this consumer-centric mission in mind uh, of making money easier for everyone, um, we found that uh, instead of building a single product, it was actually much more effective to create a platform because there were hundreds, if not thousands, of developers out there that had the same problem that we did. They wanted to create a financial services product, but they didn't have the infrastructure to do so. And so we ended up kind of dropping the consumer product that we built in the early stages, which, if if I'm quite honest, uh, it was through feedback actually from uh, a later co-founder, David's, uh, named Peyton Sherwood, who kind of said, hey, your consumer product stinks. Can we license the back end to it? 
we ended up dropping the consumer product, uh, build the infrastructure, and that scaled into the business that Plot is today. But ultimately, we didn't start out with the product specifically in mind. We started out with the problem in mind, which is consumer financial products weren't good enough, and we, we needed to find a way to make them better. Mm-hmm. And what was the why now for Plot in the sense of why wasn't it built five years before or five years later? Why was that the perfect time? So I think we got a bit lucky on timing when we started building Plaid. First, a lot of new web technologies had come out to enable us to build a set of APIs uh, or, or an API-driven product in a, in a new and, and, and faster and better way. Uh, we could leverage things like AWS, not have to have our own servers, so on and so forth. Second is we got a bit lucky in terms of the timing of the market. So there was a lot of pressure on consumer financial services. People wanted to create new and better products. Previous to, to, to Plaid existing, um, there was PayPal and there was Mint. And those are the things that you think of when you talk about fintech. And, you know, just before Plaid started, there was this startup called Venmo that came out and everyone was all, all excited about it. And we were really fortunate to capture Venmo early on as a customer, um, building kind of the, the, the interface between the bank account itself and the Venmo app on top of Plaid. And that, that helped accelerate us in kind of both the, the, the fanfare around Venmo um, and then the existence of the infrastructure led to this fintech ecosystem. We like to think we were at the right place at the right time. We hope that we had 1% to do with the growth of fintech. But really, the, the, the market itself, the excitement around the market just, just kind of hit exactly right with, with the product that we had. Yeah. And I think what you guys did, which was amazing, was like you really captured sort of the hearts and minds of the developer community, right? In a way that, you know, nobody else had done before. And, you know, I remember trying to get access to, you know, payments information and sort of access to the transaction history of these banks. And the only way to do that was, it was a company called Yodley at the time. And, you know, you may not want to talk about them, but I'm happy to like riff. You know, and they're like, sure, you can have access to it. Like, pay us, you know, a boatload of money. And we were like two kids in like a garage, like trying to tinker. And there was no way to get access. Or you tried, and we tried at the time, it's like in 2009, to go to like American Express and get access to like transaction data directly. And what you realized was that like, you know, your Starbucks transaction, you know, on 59th and Park could say, you know, Starbucks. It could say Starbucks 59th and Park or it could say like, Starbucks like 45620, which was like a unique merchant ID specific to the sort of payments processor. And so there was, a, in my opinion, sort of a lot of value that you guys unlocked by building sort of really developer-friendly tools, sort of democratizing access to that information and creating sort of standards in some way around the data to make it like usable by, you know, the sort of emergent, you know, consumer fintech ecosystem. Yeah, I would say that's actually another secular trend that we got very lucky to to hit uh, right on the head in terms of timing, um, is that developers were, were taking the majority of the decision-making power inside the enterprise. So if you, if you equip a developer, you allow them to build something quickly in financial services, and they showed it to their boss and it just worked, their boss would actually very quickly say, all right, sounds great, let's install that. And there have been a bunch of other kind of similarly timed companies. Twilio is a great example of that, um, where as developers were kind of gaining agency within the enterprise, they were able to deliver the tools and services that they needed. Um, and we feel fortunate, again, to have hit that timing uh, more or less right. And David, what was your investment thesis at, at the time in, in, in the space? And what was the insight that led you to leave Spark and start your own company, Bond Street? Yeah, so, I mean, Spark was an amazing experience, and I, you know, all credit really goes to to the team and 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 really you know there was a, a few folks like Santo and Mo and Andrew and others who were you know really big supporters of mine there which I really appreciated because I didn't know anything about venture very little about technology at the time but I had you know and they'd been incredibly successful sort of consumer internet investors previous to joining Spark I'd worked for this super successful serial entrepreneur who had started a bunch of biotech companies. He started the largest billboard company in Japan, ran a railroad, 
And he had this business lending money to hospitals. And I sort of got fascinated with the finance ecosystem, which I didn't know anything about at the time, and sort of dove deep in like the fintech ecosystem as, you know, it was much smaller at the time in, I don't know, 2011 when I first joined Spark. And yeah, I was sort of spending a bunch of time in the space. And, you know, we, we ended up doing sort of leading the seed round in Plaid pretty early, but ended up investing in Orchard and sort of a bunch of other companies that we thought could become sort of like, you know, core pieces of infrastructure in the ecosystem. You know, ultimately I, nobody called me that, but <laughs> I sort of viewed myself as like an entrepreneur residence. I, you know, I'd always thought about, I always thought of myself more as an entrepreneur than, than as an investor. And so was kind of using the perch to sort of validate my own ideas and pursue my interests. And once I had an idea that was sort of, you know, super passionate about it, didn't feel like risk. You know, I knew that I'd wanted to start a business with Peyton. We had met, as I mentioned, in, in 2009. Um, he had been at D. Shaw for about six years and then ran engineering at Venmo. And when they ended up getting acquired by Braintree and PayPal, you know, I pulled him out to go, to go build Bond Street. And yeah, I mean, very quickly, the thesis there was just that, you know, as I was running around as a VC, I'd often bump into fast-growing physical products businesses or services companies that, you know, weren't necessarily a fit for venture capital, but were doing at the time, you know, millions of dollars a year in revenue, were profitable, were growing, and having a very difficult time getting bank financing. And as you dug into the problem more deeply, you realized it was a, you know, super document-intensive offline manual process that was really opaque and, you know, or <laughs> there was these companies that were offering like fast cash at like crazy high rates. And so I really felt like there was an opportunity to build a brand that, you know, felt aspirational and actually used technology to be, you know, really more than just a lender, but become sort of the financial advocate for the entrepreneurs that we were serving. So, you know, we ended up leaving at the end of 2013 and, and started the business. And what was the biggest lesson learned? And, you you know, after a few years, you ended up selling to Goldman. What was the biggest lesson learned through, through that experience? Oh, my God. A lot. <laughs> uh, you know, you really need to be very passionate about whatever you're building because, you know, as successful as any business or not is, it's really hard. And, you know, the litmus, because it was always very easy for me to come up with business ideas. It was always very difficult to figure out which ones to pursue. And so my litmus test, which uh, when other people ask me, like, should I go leave to start this business, um, was, you know, would you raise money from people you care about? Like, you know, not your parents. And, you know, mine weren't really in a position to, like, back my company. Uh, not a professional investor because, like, it's their job to take risk. But like your father-in-law or mother-in-law, you know, or, or some equivalent person that would otherwise be a very awkward conversation. If you're willing to go to them and sort of pound the table and say like, I'm going to put your daughter's life sort of not at risk, but like, you know, it's going to be a difficult time because I'm so passionate about this idea. You're likely willing to sell everyone else. And as a founder, you know, my experience was you spend 90% of your time selling. You're selling your customers, you're selling potential employees, you're selling the press, you're selling investors, you're trying to make people care about what you're building in the world. And so you better be really passionate about whatever that is because it's it's too easy to give up in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so you guys ended up selling to Goldman. What's it now? So you've been a VC, you've been an entrepreneur, and now you're at a big company. What's that transition like? And what is it like working at, at Goldman in your unique role? It's been very different. And you know, it's funny because as funny as it sounds, Bond Street was the biggest business that I'd ever worked at, which A, was my own, and B, was, you know, all of 35 people. So, <laughs> you know, I'd worked for this entrepreneur. It was four of us. Spark was like eight of us. Bond Street was 35, and Goldman is 40,000 people. I'd like never even interned at a bank or a big company. I was very afraid going in, you know, having been a founder and 
you know, as small as my island was, like the ultimate decision maker, that I'd be very tightly wedged into this like tiny role and sort of micromanaged and suffocated. And, you know, whether it was intentional or not, like that really hasn't been the case. You know, I was given sort of the freedom to like run around and, and sort of create the role that I was interested in. And I'm just like a naturally curious person. And like, I'm never just going to like sit in my seat and sort of do what's, you know, in my quote unquote job description. I just started firing off emails to like all the people. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm here. would love to be helpful. And to their credit, people were much more receptive to that than I would have expected. I would have thought they'd be like, you know, what the hell are you doing in my office? Like, you know, move on. <laughs> and uh, that really hasn't been the case. And there's one woman in particular, this woman named Stephanie Cohen, who who's the chief strategy officer for the firm, who's been, you know, really just like a very strong advocate of mine internally. And, you know, she was interested in connecting in the venture ecosystem. And as you know, that's sort of more my community. And so help plug her into the whole sort of mafia. And then she, uh, you know, she sort of reciprocated internally. And so now working, you know, pretty closely with her and sort of burrowing deeper into the sort of core questions the firm is asking itself as it's trying to evolve. So the story of, of, of how I know David is actually quite long and, and very interconnected. So David uh, was the person that actually found us at Spark Capital. He was the, the analyst uh, on the deal that actually brought us into the firm the first time. Uh, we were raising our first real round of financing. We'd had a couple of angels before, but we were raising a seed round. And what di David didn't know when, when we first met was that we were kind of towards the end of this fundraising process. And so we, I think we had a call initially, and uh, then I think we met like, briefly. Um, and I was in New York for a couple of days. We were based in San Francisco at the time. We had just moved the company to San Francisco, but I was back in New York doing the fundraise. And so we met one afternoon, and David said, hey, can you meet tomorrow? Because uh, we can get you into the partner meeting on Monday. This is a Thursday. He said, hey, can you meet tomorrow? And I said, the only time we can meet is at 7 a.m. tomorrow. And so he said, okay, I'm going to get my partner there. So we met with Mo Koifman 7 a.m. On, uh, on this Friday, following Monday, came back to Boston, pitched the entire partnership, and Spark ended up leading this round. Little did they know that the vast majority of other investors had already rejected us. And so we actually, we were, we were so ecstatic to get the call um, from the fund actually later that day saying, hey, we'd love to lead the seed round, ended up working together that way. Um, right around that same time, we actually were a small company, had just kind of started to release the first iteration of our product. And Venmo, uh, this guy named Peyton Sherwood, uh, who is the, the head of engineering at Venmo, basically was the one that was saying, hey, this product is perfect for what we need to do. Um, can you help us install it here? We think it'd be really valuable. And so actually, those two narratives tied together where um, uh, I think David actually referenced Plaid with Peyton uh, at the time. Fast forward a couple of years, David leaves, leaves Spark. He decides to found his own company. It's in the lending space. Uh, he teams up with Peyton, who's this guy that got us our first install with our first big customer. Then they built a product on top of Plaid, uh, which went and scaled and did all of, all of the wonderful things that it did. Ended up being acquired by Goldman Sachs, who uh, actually led Plaid's Series B uh, a few months before that. And uh, Goldman is, is uh, both an investor and a customer uh, through Marcus. And so had lots of connections there into the Marcus team, also via Peyton, uh, who now is working in the Marcus team. So it's been this interesting back and forth where we never our, our paths never get quite too far away from each other. But it's been it's been really cool to see David's kind of evolution through financial services and, and, and the different aspects of financial technology um, kind of as Plaid has grown uh, yeah. in its own path. And it's been a fun friendship. You know, I've yeah. seen it. You know, we've had a yeah, as a relationship as an investor, as a customer of the technology, and just as like a, a very good friend over the past, you know, several years. So it's been amazing for me to watch sort of everything he's built, which is, you know, just phenomenal. That's awesome.
You mentioned that vast majority of investors rejected Plaid Seed Round. What did they miss? What, what did they not see about how the industry was going to evolve? So we had a lot of people that, that passed on Plaid uh, early on. We were giving this pitch to say, hey, consumers are going to need to access their financial data. And on top of financial data, you can build a lot of really interesting products. And the problem is that this pitch didn't land for most people because we said, oh, yeah, you can build a lot of interesting products. We only had a few examples of products that actually existed. Uh, so we had Mint, where Mint for a long time really did struggle with monetizing. Uh, you could get consumers to come in and build a budget, um, but not that many consumers really truly care about their budgets. And then how many of them are actually going to convert and take credit card offers or pay for this budget? Not that many. The second option was was PayPal and Venmo, but everybody said, all right, PayPal, Venmo, they're, they're one entity and there's only really one product there. What else are you going to do? And William and I had this, this belief that if we built the infrastructure, there would be a lot more developers out there that would create these new things that we'd never thought about. So today, when you look back and you say, oh, Robinhood, that seems like a company that really should exist. Well, when we were pitching the first iteration of Plaid, we didn't know that Robinhood was going to come out. Uh, we didn't know that that product was going to be there. And we certainly couldn't tell investors what product that was going to be. So we just had this inclination that that the ecosystem would grow really quickly. I think we were fortunate to meet Spark at that time. And you start to actually realize the value of the prepared mind uh, that some VCs talk about, where Spark had been thinking about, hey, there's something interesting to be done on top of financial data. I don't think that they were actually planning on having an API-driven infrastructure company. Um, I think they were more looking for, hey, there's there's something interesting to be done here. What is it? But when we when we started talking to Spark, there, there was just a really good fit because they'd been thinking about this problem for a while. I will be totally honest. We had trouble raising our Series A as well, where a lot of investors even then just didn't believe that the fintech ecosystem would, would start to grow. We had trouble some trouble raising our Series B, um, where even then a lot of investors didn't believe the fintech ecosystem was, was going to grow. A lot of the questions were around, aren't banks just going to build all of this? Aren't just banks going to build every financial product? However, what we continue to see time and time again is that there are more financial products for more consumers than you could ever imagine. Um, and so the financial technology ecosystem is actually wide open. It's just a question of getting enough people to build enough products to satisfy all the consumers that need it. Right. Why don't we talk about, zoom out a bit and talk about how the industry has evolved from 2012 till, till today, 2019. What are sort of the biggest changes that have emerged or like what's the next plat out there that someone can go build? that doesn't seem obvious today or that is having a hard time raising seed? So I think the biggest shift that we've seen in financial services in the past, call it five or six years, is that we've gone away from this stand in a bank branch, talk to a banker, do all of the things that you need to do in your banking life to a much more distributed version of a financial life where you have a, a folder on your iPhone or your Android and that dictates almost everything that you need to do in your financial life. No longer do you have to pick up a phone and talk to a banker, walk in with your shoebox full of receipts and documents to apply for a loan. You can do it all digitally. And a lot of this is, is due to kind of improved infrastructure on the back end. And a lot of it is just due to better access to that infrastructure uh, kind of on top of it. And so we started to see this, this very, I call it like an atomic way of seeing your financial services products. 10 years ago, a single bank used to be everything to everyone. You'd, you'd open a bank account when you're 12 with $25. That same bank would give you a mortgage and also help you plan for retirement. Oh, and by the way, they'd also give a business a $100 million line of credit. The, the bank was truly everything to everyone. And what happens with that is that none of those products that the banks are offering are truly incredible often. Um, they're all in one place, which is great, and that adds consumer value. But none of them are necessarily as good as a point solution that was created only for that one given purpose. 
So let's take Venmo, for example. Historically, you had to write a friend a check or give a friend cash. Now Venmo can create a better peer-to-peer payments mechanism that was simple, easy, fast, secure. And a company that was building just one product could build an amazing product. And so we've seen this shift. You look at every product that a bank offers. We've seen this shift towards a more atomic, better, higher quality product for a consumer. So that's been kind of phase one. And then phase two of what I expect is that we're actually going to see an even more specific version of each of those products that's focused on every single demographic. So for example, um, Robinhood might be the best way to trade stocks for certain demographics. But if you really need to invest and you only have a few dollars to invest, maybe a better option is Stash. Maybe a better option is, is Acorns. Maybe there are all these other options of ways to invest your money. And so I expect that we'll not only see kind of increased specificity of the applications, but a, a focus on different demographics within those specific types of applications. It's it's interesting in some ways to contrast that with sort of what's happening right now, because you had, I feel like another big trend that's, that's playing out is you had some of these early entrants who built like scaled consumer, but really monoline products. Robinhood is a good example, you know, Digit, Acorns, et cetera, who I think are now trying to move from becoming from being sort of a scaled unit profitable monoline business to becoming sort of a multi-product LTV business. And so you've seen, and I think a lot of that is being supported by like emergent infrastructure players, you know, whether it's Camber or Synapse or Green Dot or others or, you know, not quite plot, but they're all launching checking debit, you know, products and really trying, I think, to like rebundle in some ways the customer experience. I think the hardest thing to do in retail banking is, you know, what, what earns your right to get somebody's direct deposit? Like often the people that started with that bank account when you're 12, like still have that bank account. Like I still have my city bank account, not because it's, it's like great. It just, it happened to be like right next to my dorm and, you know, that's where I signed up. And so I think what will be really interesting to me is to see, you know, if some of these challengers can actually earn the right again to become sort of somebody's primary bank relationship or primary sort of financial relationship, or does there exist sort of an intermediary layer that sort of abstracts you know, all these products and sort of help stitch them together more efficiently. You might it, call that the fabric of financial services yeah. or cloud <laughs> Good <graphs>. metaphor. I <laughs> see <laughs> I'm teeing this up for you, Zach. You know, obviously it's been really impressive to me in, in a lot of ways to see what, what Goldman has done with, with Marcus. And, you know, the quick history there was when I was first starting, you know, Bond Street, I was trying to raise, we'd raised a million and a half dollars in seed capital. You know, we hired this guy, Jerry, out of Citibank to be our head of risk. And then the big challenge was how are we going to raise debt? You know, I never raised a hundred million dollars of debt before. So I was sort of getting introductions to anybody I could. And I met this guy named Omer, you know, when we were six people working in my apartment, who was managing director in the merchant bank doing private equity. He ended up, little that I know, sort of spending time with a bunch of the senior people trying to figure out how to sort of commercialize this legal bank entity. And ultimately he ended up incubating what became Marcus, which is sort of Goldman's di- new digital consumer bank. And look, there's a lot of there's a lot of wood still to chop, but like I have to give them credit for, you know, taking a really big swing. It's been really interesting to see a big company have the self-awareness that the place needs to evolve and understand that they have no legacy in a certain part of the business and actually invest, you know, really aggressively to make it happen. Because like, frankly, from the outside two years ago, it was hard to tell if Marcus was this like cute little thing in the corner that nobody really paid attention to, but, you know, they like talking about. And, you know, I really... Again, there's still a lot to do and we'll see, but like they've really leaned into that. And I, I have to give, you know, a big company credit for doing that. I would say Marcus has actually done a fantastic job of riding the trend that is happening in consumer financial services. So three or four years ago, you couldn't have launched Marcus because there are no branches. You can't walk in and talk to a banker. It's completely digital. 
Yet today, consumers are increasingly demanding, yes, be completely digital. Don't make me pick up a phone. Don't make me uh, come in and talk to you. And Marcus has done a fantastic job of, of writing that trend. Um, they're also, they have a couple amazing consumer acquisition lo- levers, one of which being this high interest savings account where they can acquire consumers that just want to stash some cash in a certain area. They can acquire them as customers very, very efficiently um, and then upsell them on all the other products. And so it's been really fantastic to watch a big bank ride the trend as well as Marcus has done. Zach, in one of your predictions, your fintech predictions of 2019, your first one was that banks will launch digitally native products in earnest and the days of big box banking uh, are over. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. The the point behind that was that this concept of a single bank being everything to everyone and being a place that you have to walk in and physically stand there and talk to a banker, that's, that's, that is the way of the past. And I think if you, if you pull a handful of people that any of us know, um, the majority of them haven't been in a bank branch for at least a month, if not a year. And certain banks are starting to actually see that and and capitalize on that. So you look at Chase, they launched a fully digital version of Chase that, that you don't ever have to walk into a bank branch, talk to a banker. Um, and it actually sits relatively separate from the rest of Chase, at least from a, a brand perception standpoint, meaning uh, they're not actively, at least yet, trying to upsell you on all of their other products. You look at, at Marcus, and Marcus is a relatively narrow product. It only does a few things. And they're not actively, at least yet, trying to sell you on all of their other products. And so what we're starting to see is amongst the biggest banks and the most forward leaning on the technology side, they're already launching these, these digital native products that are truly tailored towards the demographic that they're trying to serve best or the demographic that they're trying to acquire. And if you, if you zoom out a little bit and you look at what fintech is doing, you look at what the banks are doing with the increasing focus on point solutions that are very, very high quality. This is really the only way that the big banks are going to keep up in terms of consumer attention. Now, banks will keep up and, and retain their customers in so many other ways because they can do so many other things. But if you're trying to focus on where is the place that I'm going to open a checking account for the first time when I'm getting my first paycheck, that really has to be a digital experience. It has to be something that's easy, simple, and that I want to talk to my friends about. Because that is that is the way that we're starting to see a lot of these, these these businesses grow. The days of being able to go out and pay a bunch of money on on really any type of ad to acquire consumers and financial services are, are over. It's way too expensive. Right. Mm-hmm. And so today, the focus is on how do you build a better product that people are going to talk about? How do you get referrals? And how do you find that hack to acquire customers in a much cheaper way? Yeah, and I think I think the other sort of evolution that's coming, and you know, we'll see if we take part in this is. You know, I, and I completely agree. Like, you have to build a good product that that resonates with customers. And you know, when you pay two and a quarter percent interest on on cash, like people show up in like with billions of dollars in deposits, which has been amazing to watch. You know, but I think there's also a self awareness at Goldman, for example, that you know we don't have massive embedded distribution, so it is still you know reasonably expensive to acquire each individual customer. And so, in in some ways, if I take a step back and I ask like, what are our superpowers? Right? If we if we have them. It is that we've built like pretty modern bank infrastructure, right? In the last like two years, which doesn't really exist in my knowledge, like at any other scale bank in the world, uh, or certainly in the U.S. We have you know bank licenses all around the world. We have a very large balance sheet. We have all the compliance and sort of regulatory and risk management bells and whistles of being a global bank. And then you know, and certainly in other parts of the firm, we have relationships with some of the biggest companies in the world. And sort of through like, you know, our networks, like the long tail of consumer and fintech businesses. And so to me, there's a really big opportunity, you know, to not just have this core infrastructure, you know, power our own distribution, but to open it up as a platform to power everyone else. 
And I think that the unique thing about that is that it, it can come not just with sort of an API layer and, and sort of the technology stack, but again, the full balance sheet and really abstract away the challenges of being a bank, which are very painful for a lot of people. And, and so it, because of that, I think what you're going to see is financial services become embedded in other third-party applications that you would never have thought would have been finance businesses in the past. And I think if you can do that with sort of modern infrastructure, sort of developer-centric ethos and, and, and really sort of build a platform, I think it can sort of like really change the game. There has, you know, there's a lot of cultural change that has to happen to make that really effective. You had an interesting point there, which is talking a little bit about how you can embed financial services in places that you wouldn't traditionally consider financial services in the past. This is one of the trends that we actually see growing very, very quickly. So a lot of companies that historically didn't consider themselves financial services companies are actually now starting to do so. So let's take uh, any sharing economy company, for example. It's a two-sided marketplace. They have to think about financial services on one side in which they're that the people that are the ultimate end consumers are paying them. Yes, that matters, but they've been thinking about that for a long time. Now, the second side is how do you have a better or deeper relationship with your driver or your host? Well, it turns out financial services is actually an amazing hook for that. So if you give them a checking account or a card uh, or you find a way to get them paid faster, you find a way to give them a loan to do maintenance to their house or rent a car or something like that, all of that uh, just increases the depth of that relationship and makes them much stickier on your platform. Another example is is car dealerships. We've actually seen a ton of car dealerships now try to step into the lending space and say, well, why would you go to a bank and get a loan over there? You can just you can get a loan straight from us. We'll sell it to you right here on the lot. And kind of take that principle, apply it to everywhere in financial services as this concept of what you can do with your bank account or what you can do with money becomes more atomic and more easily distributed. I expect that we're going to see more and more of these embedded financial services in more and more places. Yeah, totally. I mean, even just to like riff on that more, you've seen that certainly over the past few years, you know, with a lot of the payments businesses, many of the software companies that, you know, it really, I think the core question is like, either how can you capture intent or what sort of unique sort of insight do you have in, in sort of transactions to your customers? And so, you know, in the small business space, one of the big challenges and fears that we had in building Bond Street was that you were starting to see, you know, companies like PayPal, Square Capital, you know, Amex and Intuit who had, you know, massive merchant bases. They had, you know, huge volumes of payment data and they realized, oh, wait, like we could actually advance cash against this payment income. And by the way, that's like a pretty reasonably high margin business relative to the core payments business, you know, and they, and the acquisition costs, which was the, in a lot of ways to, you know, Zach's earlier point, like the hardest problem in fintech uh, was solved, right? And so, yeah, I think you're going to see that continue to happen in, a, in other less obvious, you know, areas of the technology ecosystem. Yeah. Five years from now, 10 years from now, how else do you see banks evolving or what's that interplay between fintechs and banks look like? So one of our, our core theses at Plaid is that we want to make money easier for everyone. Uh, we want consumers to live a financial life that is simple and ideally it just fades into the background of, of, of what they're doing day to day. Our hope is that there'll be a ton of tools that are are out there for consumers such that the competition between all these tools forces the ones with the best outcomes or the best prices or the best communication or product quality or whatever it is. Uh, it forces those to the top and the consumer can day to day pick and choose the financial products, tools and services that they want to use. I expect if we fast forward five years, consumers will have many more financial relationships than they do today. Yes, they'll certainly have a primary point where they have all their money. Uh, that's the point where they receive their payroll uh, and the point that they use is called the routing hub for your money. 
Um, meaning I have, I have a Chase checking account. That's where I get my payroll. And I use that to fund all of the places that my money needs to be. So whether that's to make an investment, to pay off a loan, whatever it is, um, that's, that's the central hub. But the, the measure of quality for that central hub will really be its level of interconnectivity. And so what we're actually seeing right now are banks that are more focused on allowing you to connect your, your account with all of the tools and services that you need to live your financial life are the ones that are the stickiest. And the ones that make it hard for you to connect your bank account with all the things that you need are actually seeing a lot of churn. So my belief is that actually uh, the, the level of connectivity of your, of your central accounts to all of the places that you need to do things with your money is really going to matter. And increasingly, consumers are going to focus on things that either people in their demographic recommend to them or things that are highly tailored to them as an individual, meaning, you know, I need a specific amount of money in this specific type of loan with this duration and, and, and this rate. Um, how can I go and find that exact thing? I'm a big believer that financial services, the, the breadth of financial services is actually really large. I, I use this analogy between healthcare and financial services to explain how, how wide a variety of things I think need to be out there. In a hospital, there are a ton of different products, say, for a given consumer. And it is possible that you could do all of your healthcare inside of a hospital and there, there, there's a person to do each one of those things. But most of us don't go to our hospital as our, our primary care point. And most of us go to a primary care physician and that physician will then refer us to all sorts of specialists for every different thing. Um, some of those might be within a hospital system. Some of them might be specialists out there elsewhere. And because each of us are different and each of us has different needs in different points in our lives, there are actually a huge variety of specialty services out there for us. Um, and it's the same thing in financial services. So uh, the product that I need is not the same product that you need. Uh, I have a different financial circumstance. I have a different amount of cash. I have a different amount of liquidity. I have a different plan or goal. And the variety of financial services that you need is actually incredibly wide. So my guess is that, yes, we will still have this same set of core financial products that that we all use in a relatively similar manner. But actually, the, the interactivity for each of us will be very different. We'll have a ton of different specialty applications that allow us to live the financial life that we really want to live. Yeah, completely agree with you what you just described. And I, I might even like extend it a little bit further to say that, you know, I completely agree that there'll be sort of interconnectivity across these products. I think there's a giant opportunity to also build sort of that intelligence layer on top where, you know, today, a lot of the applications that exist in, in the fintech space you know, a really sort of retroactive looking. You're looking at your historical spend, you're sort of putting it into beautiful pie charts, but it's still, they're still leaving it up to the customer, you know, to take action. And I think there is a world where, you know, you can use much like the Apple watch that's tracking your sort of body temperature. Like how can these things that are sort of passively tracking your financial life push more actions or actually do the actions for you? So like a product that doesn't yet exist that I would love is like, look at my historical spend, minimize the amount of cash that sits in my checking account at any given time, push a bunch of it into a savings account because that's where it's earning yield, you know, only move capital back into my checking account like the day before my credit card bill is due or my rent is due or my, you know, student loan is, you know, payment is due. And then anything that's remaining, like put into a tax deferred retirement account, right? So like, how do you sort of maximize? And by the way, never let there be an overdraft, you know, and sort of like remove that sort of fear from my life. Again, I don't know who's going to own that intel. Maybe it's the fabric for your financial life. But, but uh, to me, that like there is a lot of anxiety that exists within sort of finance as a as a thing that we all deal with. And so for for comp I think there's a big opportunity to sort of remove that anxiety from people's sort of mental state. It was certainly core to the way we thought about building Bond Street too. Is like it's hard enough for entrepreneurs to build a business. Like how can we make the financial part of their lives easier? Right. And the way we, the first vector at the beginning was to do that through making the loan process easier. But 
we were actually building technology at the time, you know, to not just ingest data more efficiently and underwriting to sort of interpret that information, but also to programmatically monitor the health of the business post-funding and to then surface those insights back to the entrepreneur to really empower them to make better financial decisions. You know, automation is actually an amazing trend in fintech. One of the things that we learned really early on um, when we were trying to build the first initial consumer application version of Plaid is that it's really hard to get someone to do something that they know they should do, but they don't want to do. For example, getting someone to spend less money on something so they can save more money uh, somewhere else. People hate that. And you all know that you need to do it sometimes. And, and it's the same thing with budgeting. There are certain people that love budgeting, but most people that do budgeting because they feel like they need to build a budget, but they really don't want to look at it. And ultimately, at some point, they're probably just going to delete the app. And so getting consumers to do things that are financially good for them, that help get them out of a hole, get them out of a jam, plan for the future, whatever it is, it's hard if you make them take action, but it's a lot easier if you do it automatically. This is actually one of the great insights that Digit had when they first launched, which was, hey, let me take just a few dollars uh, that you have extra in your account. Let me put it in a rainy day fund, and, and that'll actually start to accrue savings. And so take that same principle of how do you create automation to help people kind of do the things they need to do? Or how do you give people the right nudges at the right time to get them over the hump of doing things they see, that they need to do for themselves? I think that, that that concept has taken hold in a bunch of different places. I mentioned Digit. You see it in Acorns. You see it in a bunch of other applications already. And I think that that will continue to kind of grow as a, as a trend. And I think that we'll start to see more and more of these applications that are really helping people live the financial life that they want to live. David, why don't we pretend that you're back at Spark or Ribbit or any of these other great VC firms are focused fully on, on VC. And you, you know, in 2012, you had a thesis. 2019, how would that thesis, what would be similar? What would be different? And what in the macro environment has changed that would, that would lead to that? There's a bunch that's evolved. And I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities that exist. So a couple of things I'd say. One, I think a lot of the trends that you've seen play out in the US and in, in a bunch of the sort of Western geographies in fintech are playing out all over the world, right? So one of the companies that I helped Goldman invest in recently is a is a business in Argentina called Walla, which you can think of it as sort of like, you know, Chime or Monzo or Revolut, but in Argentina, the business is growing like a weed. I mean, they've been around for maybe 12 months. They've signed up, you know, I don't know, meaningfully over 500,000 customers in Argentina. So population adjusted, it's like millions of, of, you know, consumers in the US. You know, and it turns out that when your product is like really good and then you don't have competition, and the incumbents products like charge fees on everything, like the thing grows and people spread the word and there's just massive viral, you know, virality. And so I think investing in fintech and emerging markets is something I'm super excited about. And I think you're going to see this in Indonesia and the Philippines, Vietnam, like, you know, North Africa, Eastern Europe, you know, and I don't think most people are spending time. I know, you know, the Ribbit guys have spent a ton of time in India and, you know, the Tiger folks have obviously invested pretty aggressively, you know, so that's, that's one trend I think is super compelling. Look, I think there's a ton of opportunities sort of at the infrastructure layer still. Another category that I find super interesting is businesses that are tackling sort of an unsexy like back office problem with beautiful software who then sort of build robust data assets that ultimately spawn services businesses or capital markets businesses. So two examples that, that sort of immediately come to mind. One is Carta, 
right? Carta, you know, I felt the pain as a, you know, analyst and associated at a venture capital firm, like building cap tables in Excel. I was not particularly good at them. <laughs> so the rares in this company came along and built sort of beautiful software. To sort so surprised AngelList didn't take over that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I think it was their loss, honestly. You know, they've done an incredible job, obviously, locking up sort of the private company ecosystem. There's another company in a similar vein called Juniper Square that has built sort of investor relations software very specifically for real estate private equity. So again, they, they built software to do all the outbound, the CRM, fund accounting, portfolio analytics, reporting, you know, and then they're building tools for all the other parts of that equation. And again, you can imagine them sort of building a whole bunch of services businesses, you know, around that too. So there's stuff like that that I'm like super interested in. I think I've become a little bit bearish on things certainly that require like meaningful balance sheet, right? I think maybe I have sort of the PTSD from from building one as an entrepreneur and just seeing it from within a big bank where you know, if you're an if you're a normal sort of tech entrepreneur, you can get, you know, feedback from your customers and iterate on your product like in relatively real time. When you're having to sign sort of large warehouse facilities or sort of forward flow agreements to get balance sheet and debt capacity, like you can only strike those relationships like every one, two years, maybe, you know, you do a securitization at scale every few months. Like it's harder, I think, to iterate on your business model and your product if you have a very balance sheet intensive business. And if you have permanent capital in the form of deposits, you know, and we don't ha even have a funding advantage relative to some of the larger banks, like it just eliminates one side of your equation. Right. When I look at early stage fintech, and we're fortunate to see a lot of these businesses through Plaid, the one thing that we tend to find truly differentiates companies is their ability to acquire customers. Acquiring customers through just pure pay, it, it doesn't work so well anymore. The, the CAC is just too high. But there are these killer features that people will hit on every now and then that just completely changed the game. And so think about what peer-to-peer -peer was from, call it 2012 or so up until 2018. Peer-to-peer -peer was the most incredible customer acquisition engine ever. And you see, you see Venmo, you see Square Cash, you actually saw a lot of other businesses as well embed peer-to-peer, -peer, and they just ended up with tons and tons of customers on the back end. Another really amazing one is referral and, and getting actually really good referrals, even if they're paid. Um, getting that embedded in there. There's another another tactic that Venmo had when they had their referral program on. It was just killer. They were they were signing up so many users. Other ones that we've started to see are things like embedding high interest uh, savings uh, into into a product, and uh, only certain companies can do that. But those that are able to, they see massive adoption very very quickly. Crypto uh, was one of those where if in kind of like 2016, 2017, 2018, you added crypto trading to your platform, you just tons of users just immediately showed up. And I think when you actually look into a lot of the products and financial services, finding a way to either, one, distribute some micro problem um, more efficiently, i.e. paying your friends, for example, or two, make something more valuable to a customer. So take the cost out of X, uh, take the cost out of trading, take the cost out of investing, reduce the cost of investing, or give people money back, i.e. Uh, high interest savings. Doing those things where you slightly change the economics or you slightly change the distribution can have massive value in terms of the number of customers that are, that are using your platform. And so generally where we see rapid growth and rapid success is in companies that have either one or both of those features embedded in, in what they're doing and they're able to see just this, this crazy consumer growth yeah david how has lending uh, evolved and, and where would you be excited as as an investor in, in the lending ecosystem it's a it's a hard question i think you've seen i think there was sort of the first wave of online lenders which 
you know, it was really just about sort of taking an offline experience and putting it online, right? And and you had sort of a, a digital application and a landing page and really a very large sort of direct mail sort of operation. What you're seeing now is a few things. One, you've seen sort of a wave of companies figure out sort of different and more proprietary sort of acquisition channels. So, you know, I've been very impressed with, you know, folks like, you know, Affirm and Klarna and others who, again, try to capture intent and, and sort of use technology to embed themselves at that point, which was, you know, the checkout flow. The other wave that, you know, I talked about a little earlier was, you know, a lot of these large payments businesses realize that, hey, there's actually a lot of margin to be had in, in offering lending. And by the way, we we can de-risk it because A, we're the payment processor itself. And we, and, you know, we're actually processing the transaction. We can actually collect the payments before it's even sent back to the merchant. So in, in small business space, you've seen that again, you know, with, you know, Amazon, Intuit, PayPal, Square. Uh, I think you'll see that in other large technology companies that process payments. I think the thing that's been difficult, and it's really to that other point about trying to iterate on your business model, you know, we at Bond Street, for example, started with term loans, right? Which was, you know, really about financing growth for entrepreneurs. It was helping people open new locations, hire employees, buy an important piece of equipment, maybe refinance out a business credit card. We saw a tremendous amount of demand for things like a line of credit, right? So we were financing growth. It was also this other need by many entrepreneurs, which is around working capital. Now you would think, awesome, <laughs> you know, create another product like Grow LTV. The challenge is how you actually structure the business to offer a line of credit is super different than how you would structure the business, you know, to offer term loans. We were super balance sheet light. We had a relationship with, you know, folks like Jeffries who we would fund the loan and then immediately sort of sell the loan to them. But with a line of credit, you really need a real balance sheet, right? You need capital available so that when somebody comes to you and says, I want to draw down, you know, today, like the capital is available. And so, I think there is a future. I think if a lot of these companies are going to survive and thrive, ultimately they're going to need to have sort of a unique customer acquisition advantage. You know, maybe it's embedding software like what we were building with Beacon with that sort of, you know, cash flow analytics, or they have sort of embedded unique ability to sort of see intent. And I think you need, you know, multiple products that solve different needs for your customer to really grow LTV. I think without both of those components, it's, it's a tough challenge. What opportunities remain in fintech infrastructure? It's a good question. Look, I've, I think you've seen a lot of adoption recently. Certainly, there's a company, it's really a JV of a business between a, a business called Stonecastle, which is a network of you know community and regional banks that are all sort of sub $10 billion in deposits, meaning they're all Durban exempt. And with a, a partnership with a company called Q2 Banking, which is a publicly traded sort of mini FIS, and they have sort of cloud sort of mobile banking software. The two of them joined up and said, okay, here's now essentially checking a debit in a box. So that like tool has led to a massive amount of other fintech companies launching checking a debit in part because if you're a Durban exempt bank, you can charge higher interchange. So uh, you can charge something like, I don't know, 200 basis points on spend. And that economics gets split both to Canberra and it gets split to the, you know, fintech company offering you know, that card to their, to their users. So people have realized, Hey, if I can earn, I don't know, a hundred basis points on every, you know, every dollar spent, like that's a really interesting sort of high margin uh, source of revenue. It also drives, you know, engagement, right? So again, if you can build sort of an ongoing relationship and in a perfect world, get somebody's direct deposit, like you can probably cross sell them other stuff. So, you know, there's companies like Canber, Synapsify, Green Dot has sort of a banking as a service product, Stripe, you know, debit card issuance. Like there are players like that who I think 
have emerged to sort of make that infrastructure super easy. I'm sure you'll see that in other areas of infrastructure as well. What about the robo-investing space or otherwise wealth management? How have you seen that evolve? And obviously big players like Wealthfront, Betterment. What, what do we expect to see in the future in that space? I think they've captured on a trend which is happening again across fintech, which is, you know, how do you deliver more value to the customer? And you you sort of position yourself both you know, philosophically, but also sort of economically on the customer side, right? And, you know, I think you've seen, you know, the wealth fronts and betterments and, you know, personal capitals and others of the world who've, you know, built nice businesses, again, offering value, you know, to their end customer. I think to our earlier conversation, the challenge is really just around, you know, customer acquisition. And we've only really, those companies have only really operated, frankly, in a sort of rosy, you know, macro environment where, you know, their AUM is growing along with the stock market, you know, what happens when, a, and by the way, that's how they make money because it's a percentage of assets. What happens when the stock market declines? You know, is that capital as sticky as people think? It probably is, to be honest. But, you know, direct-to-consumer paid acquisition is, is very expensive. And so, again, you know, are there, I think there are opportunities to sort of embed similar types of products or sort of use unique distribution channels to get in front of customers um, and capture some of that sort of wallet share. So I think you'll see sort of more models like that evolve, you know, either at Goldman or other places. Zach, you uh, you wrote your maybe 12 or so fintech predictions in 2019. Are there any updates to the prediction list or any, any ones we should go in here? I think one of the, one of the ones that I talked about in, in, in that list was that kind of European fintech companies are, are, are going to come to the U.S. I think U.S. fintech companies are going to go to Europe. And I think that's one of the trends that we're actually starting to see play out more and more. So we're seeing kind of many of these European large companies, uh, think of either the neobanks or, or potentially the lenders that are in Europe, starting to think hard about how do you get into the U.S. market. And likewise, Europe is starting to expand. I think the, the macro trend, though, that we're seeing is that consumers live this increasingly cross-border life. And historically, the way that cross-border consumers got served is that they had a set of tools that allowed them to get money across a border. And so you use one product over on one side of the border, you use another product on the other side of the border, and maybe there's a bridge. And TransferVise built this incredible business on being just a really great bridge. But what we're seeing now is that consumers just more and more want something that's internationalizable. So let me use a, the same or a similar product just wherever I am. Uh, give me a debit card that just works wherever it is and, and, and do my currency transfer for me. Um, so I think that we're actually going to see a, a pretty big push on international. I won't say it's just Europe to the U.S. It's Europe within Europe, across the countries there. It could be kind of even further afield. But I think the kind of internationalization is, is an interesting trend that we're seeing more and more of. I've been very surprised, frankly, to see, you know, some of the large European neobanks, like their first next stop is the U.S. If I'm them, and maybe this is controversial, like I think it's a huge strategic mistake. And I'm not saying that like speaking on, you know, Marcus or Goldman's behalf. I just think... Like, why would you go to the literally the most competitive market in, in the world instead of owning, you know, Eastern Europe, North Africa, going to Latin America, other geographies where, again, the, the sort of core incumbent products and, their, and the competition, frankly, is like not nearly as strong. If you have a giant war chest, like there's a chance that a lot of these guys just like burn money in the U.S. So my one response to that yeah. is interchange. So Durban exempt interchange is an amazing thing in the U.S. It's one of the primary revenue drivers for many fintech companies. And it doesn't exist in Europe. Uh, and it doesn't exist in many other parts of the world. And so there is this actual like inherent value to having this, this high rate card or, or high revenue card that you can issue. 
Now, how long is that sustainable? I don't know. Given the amount of pressure that we've seen on interchange internationally, like, is it sustainable to have this, this kind of durable exemption for all the small banks and, and be able to make money on that long term? I mean, the medium term, yes, you could probably build another startup off of it. But is it going to exist for 50 years? I, I don't know. Right. Um, and there is a lot of pressure on, on those kinds of things. So I agree with your, your macro long term <laughs> viewpoint. Um, but short term, I mean, Durban exempt debit is, it's pretty cool. Yeah. What's something you've changed your mind on in the past year in the space or, or, or uniquely contrarian view you hold or hot crypto take? Well, I definitely changed my mind on like what it would be like to work at a big company. <laughs> you know, again, I, I was, you know, skeptical, you know, to be frank. And I've been very like pleasantly surprised to see, you know, that, that they've embraced me as sort of an outsider and, and have actually given me agency to sort of create a platform and, you know, I really have to thank people like Omer and Stephanie and others. And I think it's a testament broadly to the culture of the firm, you know, that people were, were pretty receptive to that and, and sort of, you know, understood that, Hey, we're all trying to move, go in the same direction and, and evolve. And, you know, if this person would be helpful, like let's make it happen. So that was a big change. So one of the biggest changes uh, in my mind was the fact that you could actually build a more or less full stack banking product outside of the bank. When when we started Plaid, we assumed that we'd give people access to kind of read-only functionality, minimal write functionality. And now what we're starting to see is that actually you can build a full stack bank outside of the bank without having a banking license and just by renting one or licensing one. Um, and maybe one day applying for your own banking license, which is its own, its own conversation. But the the simplicity of creating something in fintech is much more than we'd originally assumed. We knew that there was demand. We knew that there would be people pushing the envelope. Um, but actually creating a checking account held outside of the bank, actually issuing a card, much easier than, than it used to be. And so that actually gives me kind of more belief or a deeper seated belief around the fact that there will be many, many non-banks that people will use long-term. Part of me in the early days of Plaid thought that the banks are just going to buy all of the good products or copy all the good products, and we're going to end up in the same world that we were in before, but just slightly more technologically advanced. Now, starting to see the way the ecosystem evolved, it's clear that there's going to be a ton of non-banks that are going to add amazing value to consumers' lives and are going to be used over the next few decades. That paradigm shift happened for me maybe two years ago. And you just see the acceleration in the ecosystem ever since, which is really exciting. Totally agree. And I think if you look at China, it's an amazing example with like WeChat and Ant, what Ant has done. Like these are giant non-bank entities that really, you know, people run their entire financial lives through and they have hundreds of millions of customers. Well, China is actually the big question mark for me because there are two gigantic non-bank financial applications. There aren't 200, there aren't 2,000. And I wonder if the U.S. will end up in, in, a, in a world in which there are truly only two or three or five or ten, or if we're going to end up in a world in which there's 2,000. Because now, kind of, we live in a world in which there are thousands. Um, and if you look back at the history of financial services in the United States, at, at peak, I think we had 22,000 banks. Um, and now we have, I don't know, 11,000 or so, um, and banks and credit unions, of course, and then 2,000 neobanks. And maybe we'll get back. Maybe we'll have 20,000 total. Um, or maybe somehow we'll get to get to two. Um, I'm excited <laughs> to see what happens. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Guys, this has been a fantastic episode. For people who want to learn more, you can follow David at dhaber on Twitter and Zach at Zach Prey on, on Twitter. Uh, any last minute plugs or places you point them to? Use Plaid. <laughs> Use Plaid. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, guys. Thanks. It's been great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.